This is 1 in 44, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. 1 in 44 is a weekly show devoted to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to 1 in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Doherty. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Yay. Uh, one, one, check one thing off the list. Uh, so we're going to call you Joe throughout the interview. Is that all right? Yeah, that's wonderful. All right. Fantastic. And uh, Joe is here to tell us about some really um, intriguing uh, research that you're involved in. And I'm going to stop there and just say, uh, ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us where you're working and get in, uh, up to date on, on what you're working on. Sure. Hi. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I'm super excited to, to talk to you and to talk to your audience as well and share some of the work that we've been up to. Uh, so did you want me to tell them about my background first? Yeah. What? Yeah. Give us a little bit of your professional background, anything personal that brought you to the field of autism, or maybe it was through a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. So I did my undergraduate work at Truman State University in Missouri in psychology, and I was very interested in how the mind and the brain worked and how that sometimes uh worked differently in different people. Uh, But as I studied psychology as an undergrad, I got more and more into the biological side of it. How does the brain actually create a mind? And so for graduate school, uh, I went off to UCLA to do a PhD in neuroscience. And while there, I had the great opportunity to be part of Dan Geshwin's lab. And it was at a remarkable time for research because a couple of different really neat things were going on. One of those uh, was that we were moving as biologists from studying sort of one gene at a time, one protein at a time, to these new methods that let us study a lot of things at once in parallel. And that's an important thing because it turns out that there are maybe 20 or 25,000 different genes in the genome, uh, and each of those can have a different role. And if you study them one at a time, you're very slow potentially to make progress. And so there was this new sort of genomics revolution going on that let you look at many things at once. And the other thing that was cool that was going on was really a movement in autism research of being kind of like one lab with one set of patients they were working on uh, and another lab with a different set to really a lot more data sharing um, and really bringing together resources. I I think the field had recognized that autism genetics was going to be a lot more complicated than they'd expected. Yes. Yeah. Was it, was it th- this at the time that uh, there were various entities that were um, looking at, uh, I know that there are some places where they've collected enormous numbers of samples of brain tissue, mm-hmm. um, both from people on the spectrum and also people, their siblings and I'm guessing parents, grandparents, I don't know how far you go back, but is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? That those, those huge, um, yeah. I don't know what to call them, but yeah. Collections or consortia. I think, the, well, the first, the brain tissue is pretty rare in autism um, because it's a disease of childhood. You know, exactly. the, most of the kids are still using their brains, thankfully. Yes. You, know, uh, you know, compared to Alzheimer's disease where you kind of diagnose it towards the end of life, they have very big brain banks. And with autism, that's always been more of a challenge. Uh, but what they were doing a lot was just the DNA extracted from blood or from spit. And with the goal of trying to identify uh, genes that were different in kids with autism compared to the general population or to their siblings. Um, and I think as they realized how complicated the genetics of autism were, folks realized that they really needed large sample numbers to get there, to you know, really, the field had to come together, the patients had to come together. And Dan was involved in helping organize uh, a lot of those early efforts with Agree, another kind of big consortium that brought families together to, to investigate this. Uh, at the time, I was just a spectator on the autism side of research. And what I 
took on, you know, I come from the psychology background and I wanted to learn how to do real cause and effect biology experiments. And I ended up studying this really minute thing because it was cause and effect. Um, there are cells that build up the brain that are called neural stem cells. And when they're developing a brain, they have to make a decision. They can divide to make twice as many cells and thus be able to kind of amplify up the number of workers to build the brain, or, or they can differentiate and become a neuron and stop dividing and just wire up and get ready to, to you know, uh, communicate the way that neurons do. And so I was studying the molecular decision between proliferate, like continue growing or differentiate, turn into a neuron. And that was fun. And I was using these new high throughput methods so we could study all the genes at once and try to identify any gene that did it. Uh, and it was fascinating. I got to learn like real cause and effect experimental biology. And I, I loved my PhD, but I got to the end of it and I thought, well, you know, this isn't what drove me into science. I was interested in how minds work. And here I am down at this level of how did neurons divide. Right. Um, so I did a, a postdoctoral study for another period of time, actually in New York, uh, where you guys are centered, mm -hmm. um, but in New York City at the Rockefeller University. Okay. Um, and there I trained with a, a fellow named Nat Heinz, who was a fantastic at um, mouse genetics, and also the study of gene expression uh, about where genes are turned on and off and how that varies across the brain. Um, and the neat thing about the training there was it allowed me to take my interest in uh, uh, how the mind works and how you know behaviors embodied in the brain um, and combine it with my desire to be able to do kind of cause and effect experiments with genetics. Uh, because in mice, you have the ability to have a behaving organism, but also there's the technology available to turn genes on and off and see what that does to behavior. All right. Sometimes when I interview scientists who are doing this kind of research, I get tongue-tied because there's so many questions that um, that I have all at once. But um, I guess I'm just struck by, by your trajectory in terms of that cause and effect, which is so minute, so detailed. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you did not lose sight of another thing I found very interesting that you said earlier, which is you were interested in how does the brain form a mind? You don't hear that. Uh, I've not heard that um, said by anybody before, like that kind of thinking, how does the brain form a mind? So what, what happened next? <laughs> Where did that take you? So um, I had a wonderful time working for Nat and I learned to study, um, you know, there's hundreds of different kinds of cells in the brain. And they each, to be able to create a particular behavior, you know, it's hard to measure the minds directly, but what we can observe in people and in rodents is their behavior. How do they behave in a certain circumstance? Sure. Um, do they learn well or not? Uh, if you give them a choice of uh, interacting with a social, another mouse or another kid, uh, do, they, do they choose that over, you know, dealing with an object? So you can kind of measure the behavior that way. And we know that many of those behaviors are sort of built out of cells in the brain that wire up into certain circuits, like there might be a circuit for social reward that takes input about whether there's a social stimulus and kind of drives motor behavior to move towards it or a circuit for vocal communication, you know, that helps us speak and talk or helps a mouse pup cry for its mother. Um, so these are all sort of measurable circuits that give behavior that we think has to do with the mind. Uh, and with that, what I learned to do was study which genes in the brain are expressed in which cell types that build those circuits. And that's kind of an important question. You know, I said there's 20 or 25,000 yeah. different genes, um, but the, and, you know, every cell in your body has an identical copy of all of those, but each cell only turns on what it needs. So the liver turns on the liver proteins and genes and the brain turns on the brain and within the brain, which is the most complex and interesting organ, 
in my opinion, as a neuroscientist, yeah, I'm a little biased. Say, you know? I think you're a little biased, but yeah, I'm a little biased. I'm sure the liver guys love the liver. And I, <laughs> nothing against it. I clearly need one to stay alive, but you know, the brain has hundreds of different kinds of neurons and they each are training on a totally different program of genes to be able to wire up and do what they need to do. So I thought, you know, I did that kind of very basic science of understanding what genes are expressed where in the brain. Um, but I, I, you know, thinking back to what I tr- heard in Dan's lab about autism genetics, I thought there was a neat opportunity there to bring this problem back. Um, this basic science question and try and under see if I could learn something about autism. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the cause and effect kind of overlay. Of yeah, I think there, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm prompting you because you're going to say it way much better than me. <laughs> well, well, I think there's, there were two like interesting questions and that's when I came here to Washington University in St. Louis to start my own lab uh, and kind of launch my own group. And those two things were, um, you know, is autism, you know, aut- we know, we've known for decades that autism is strongly driven by genetics. Mm-hmm. And in the last 10 years, the field has been able to start to identify some of those genes that actually do clearly cause autism. Right. And so I was looking at that data and thought, well, that is two interesting questions for me that I can maybe ask to try and help understand something about autism. Um, one is like, where in the brain are those genes expressed? If they all happen to be expressed in exactly the same place, then that could help us actually discover what circuits are important for autism. So that was sort of a, a computational project. Just look at the patterns of expression and see if there's some commonality that can help us understand where this disease is in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that could be important for treatments. There's a lot of neurological disorders where the treatment is really based on knowing the circuit of the cell type. You know, Parkinson's disease, this classic example. In Parkinson's disease, people late in life lose all the dopamine producing neurons of the substantia nigra. And that neuropathology led to the treatments. They're missing dopamine neurons. Maybe if we add more precursor for dopamine, they can help compensate and get better. And that led to L-DOPA treatments that were almost miraculous when they came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in autism, we don't know what's going on in the brain for folks that is leading to the deficits. We don't have that single marker. And so maybe we thought the gene expression would get us there. Okay. That was one side. And the other side, and that's kind of the work that has come out recently um, on these uh, MIT1L mutants I'd like to tell you about. Uh, yes. th- that side is that um, is really trying to understand what each of these autism genes does to brain development and to gene expression in the brain. All right. I'm going to stop you right there, only because yeah. we are... Um, just about out of time for our first uh, half of the interview, but it's a perfect place to jump back in in a minute um, when we come back. And then I want to spend the whole rest of the second half of the show with you talking to us about that particular work that you're doing, because um, I find all of this fascinating um, and you're doing a great job explaining it. But I think that what I was reading about um, in preparation for our conversation this morning is, is really quite amazing um, uh, in terms of uh, like the immediate information as well as maybe some implications for the future. So if you don't mind, we're just going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in just a moment. This is one in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm news correspondent, Bob Woodruff. In 2006, a roadside bomb struck the armored vehicle I was riding in while reporting from Iraq. I sustained a life-threatening traumatic brain injury. The military term, got your six, means I have your back. And that day, our service members had mine. During my recovery, I learned firsthand the challenges facing our service members who return home with injuries. While serving, their fellow service members always had their six. Now that they're home, it is our turn. 
We started the Bob Woodruff Foundation to make sure that the camaraderie and support they relied on in the military carries on, and we need you. Please join us as part of the Got Your Six initiative and help us be there for impacted veteran service members and their families. They've had our backs. It's time we have theirs. Learn more at gotyoursix.org. That's gotyoursix.org. Using the number six. And now, 1 in 44 continues on 100.7 WHUD. This is a weekly community affairs program presented by the Anderson Center for Autism. Welcome back to 1 in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and with me today is Dr. Joe Doherty, um, who's doing some amazing research right now, I think, at the at Washington, Washington University in St. Louis, but just gave us a nice background about uh how you got into the field, um, some of the other things that you've done in, in different locations, but let's just jump right back into it. Tell us about the work that you're doing right now um, and and uh, what, what you're learning and what your hopes are for the future. Sure. Um, I mean, the project I'm most excited about, well, I'm excited about all my projects <laughs> in the lab, but the, the one I really like to tell you about is with this new autism and intellectually intellectual disability associated gene um, called MIT1L or MYT1L. So, What's interesting about this gene, I, I say it's one of a set of genes that was recently discovered to be associated um, with autism. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the efforts of these large consortia who brought together lots of different families from across the U.S. who all donated their DNA, and they were able to sequence the DNA and identify gene mutations uh, that were found in kids with the disorder that were never found in their siblings or in the general population. So that's so key. That's one of those big factors of genetic uh, studies, right, is finding uh, something that that doesn't, that's different. Absolutely. I mean, that's how- Siblings and twins. That's ah, amazing. And it's uh, uh, Dr. Schulman, I think you had on a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Yeah, she's the the Spark study. So some of this data came out of that. I mean, if if families are interested in getting involved in contributing to understanding autism genetics, I'd really recommend reaching out to that Spark consortium. They're wonderful. I love that. That's great. Awesome. So yes, so shout out for that and get involved. But I'm sorry to interrupt. I just am so excited to hear that this is um, leading to things. It's great. So, yeah, it's been a real renaissance in identifying autism genes. Uh, One of the challenges is we've identified almost too many. There are sort of hundreds uh, that each one, probably collectively, these kinds of mutations are five or 10 percent of autism. They're rare events, strike of lightning, not inherited from the parents, a mutation that happened in the sperm or the egg, knocked out one of two copies of of an important gene. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in the disorder for these kids. But we don't, having identified the gene, we don't really understand how that leads to the disease. And that's, that's where my lab comes in. Um, a lot of these genes turn out to be types of genes whose job it is to turn on other genes. So transcription factors or tran- tr- transcriptional regulators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the, sort of my training in gene expression came in uh, to be helpful, was that this MIT1L gene was one of those genes that is thought to be a regulator of other genes. Okay. Um, and it's especially thought to be a regulator really early in brain development. So it's sort of on at high levels while cells are making those decisions of whether or not to proliferate or differentiate and then how to mature and wire up. But beyond that, it was hard to, you know, we kind of knew where, what it was supposed to do based on what it looked like, but we had never really seen how it played out in the brain. Since these are really rare mutations, um, the, and we need to be able to study a, a developing brain to understand what they do, uh, what we did was we engineered a mouse line uh, to have the same mutation uh, as a child with autism. As an actual person. As an actual person. In this um, case, Jake. Right? In this case, Jake. So uh, awesome. this all, yeah, this all grew out of a, a wonderful collaboration with a local clinician and a family. Uh, the clinician had been working with 
with Jake and the lit bags for years to try and understand the cause of their child's autism. And as sequencing costs dropped, they were able to sequence his genome. And they, they identified that he had one of these strike blighting events in his MIT1L gene that clearly was introducing something that looked like it was interrupting it. So he only had one of the two functioning copies left. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took, you know, they recorded his sequence and provided us that information. We synthesized that same sequence in a lab and injected it into a mouse egg. Um, along with some genome editing reagents, and we're able to introduce pretty close to an identical mutation in the mouse. Uh, Mouse and human genes are very similar, so this let us create kind of a little mouse model of Jake, basically. Unbelievable. This is, you've lost me in terms of any, I mean, it's, but in a great way, like it's it's so amazing that you're able to do this, um, and 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 huge thanks to the family and to uh, Jake for supporting this and for uh, for helping. That's oh, I mean, they were instrumental. They they not only um, you know provided the motivation, of course, but they also were help. You know, the, the early steps of a lot of this kind of research um, is a lot of effort and high risk, and it's hard to get support for these early phases. And they were with fam- friends and family were able to solicit support to actually fund the first part of the work, uh, support somebody in the lab to, you know, characterize the mouse initially and pay for the kind of expensive part of this, the high-risk reagents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that led to longer-term support from the uh, National Institutes of Health to actually study this form of autism in detail. Um, but thanks to their efforts, we were able to kind of go to the National Institutes of Health and say, look, we're ready. We've got, we've got this mouse. We have the assays. We have the skill and people to try and understand this, what this does to brain function. Amazing. Yeah. So, so thank you. And, and remember, if you're a family and, and you have, um, interest and ability to get involved in some of the research that's going on, you know, there's, there's a lot of avenues to take to do that. And obviously it makes a huge impact for the people who are here, like, uh, like Joe, who are, who are ready to do the work. Um, so let's jump back to where you were. So you, you did, I'm not going to try to repeat the phrasing, but you basically yeah. created a, um, a, a, an almost exact rep- replica of, of the sequence, this DNA sequence in a mouse, yep. um, from the DNA of, uh, of a, of an adolescent, right? Right. Yeah. We didn't pull out his actual DNA and put it in. They sequenced it and we took the sequence and synthesized and put it in. Okay. So Um, no risk to Jake at all. No risk to Jake whatsoever. Right. Jake, Jake, I think spit in a tube. That was it, you know. All right. Um, But uh, the, what that gives us ability to do is try and understand what parts of the challenges we saw in Jake really came from this mutation and what didn't. And then also how does the brain develop when it's missing one copy of this gene? Because when you have these rare forms of mutation that are associated with autism, you know, autism is a spectrum and you see a variety of features and some of them, you don't know if this is related to their autism or if it's just a coincidence. Like Jake had relatively poor motor abilities, um, a little bit of hyperactivity. Like, was that correlated with the gene or would that have just happened anyway? So we could look in the mice and we put the mice, we made a group of mice with identical mutation and we compared to them to their siblings that didn't have it. And we put them through a little, um, American Ninja Warrior course where they're like climbing up little ladders and they nice. got like doing balance beams and stuff. Um, and the mice pretty reliably had motor coordination deficits mm. when they lost this mutation, uh, or sorry, when they had the mutation. Uh, when we do some brain imaging, the brains are slightly smaller, which is often seen in MIT1L patients. Um, they were a little bit hyperactive, which is often seen in MIT1L patients. And so on sort of trait after trait, we were able to, to look at the mice and identify something that was reminiscent of what we see in the patients. So that tells us the gene, that the gene is disrupting some kind of conserved circuit in the brain that is responsible for those classes of behavior. What are the implications? I, I, I have to keep it moving just because of the time we have, but I, I know we're jumping all, you know, yeah. over to be able to edit big stuff, but what... 
what do you what are what are some implications for uh, in the field for the next round of research that you're going to get involved in or for even for um, individuals with autism now or their families? Anything? I mean, thoughts <laughs> based on what you're seeing? Sure. Uh, there's probably three big things. Like mm-hmm. if we have a good mouse model of the disease, uh, we have a chance to test a lot of different treatments, like more than it would be quick or easy to test in the patients. We can try a wide range of things and just take the best ones forward to our clinical collaborators. And I, I think that's really important. We now know what's wrong and we can try and correct it there, at least for these sort of like mouse-like little tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, we can, the second thing is understand the basic biology of this gene. Like what are those circuits in the brain that are disrupted? Where are they? It gives us kind of a handle to try and go in. Uh, and I think the important thing in, in, there is how are those in common with other forms of autism and intellectual disability? Uh, as I said, the human genetics now, it's fantastic. They're discovering hundreds of causes. Um, that probably explains why there's such a spectrum of different outcomes for kids with autism and different challenges. Yes. But also, what are the commonalities? Because it, it can be hard to bring a therapeutic forward for a really rare condition uh, because it's so there's so few folks to test it in. There's such a, from the pharmaceutical company's side, there's maybe such a small market, they're less interested. Mm-hmm. But if all these different forms shared some common circuit changes, maybe you could target those common circuit changes and find a treatment that's sort of helpful across a range of different versions. So, I mean, I think those are, those are definitely uh, two big things. And then third is just understanding the basic biology of what this gene does, which for, as the biologist side of me is certainly sort of exciting uh, to understand its targets and how it's related to brain development uh, at a fundamental level. Um, I mean, going all the way back to my work with Dan Geshwind, uh, one of the things we found out this gene does when we got into studying early brain development is that it actually is probably driving that early decision between whether or not a shell should grow another cell or make a little neuron. It's driving them towards making the neurons a little too early. And so you end up with a slightly smaller brain. Really? So I think that's why it all kind of funny. It all comes back full circle. This thing that I like left behind and thought was done seems to be maybe contributing to uh, the development of this disorder in some way. Well, I mean, that's amazing and, that, and that's great. And I would just say um, from a complete layperson's perspective, keep pulling that thread then because that, that to me tells me that, um, that you're on the you know, right path in, in a lot of ways. And uh, I really want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, we at Anderson, you know, we work with, uh, with a large number of children and adults with autism and, and a lot of families. And um, there is so much that families take on and are, are challenged with and, and also celebrate and live their lives throughout, you know, for, for extended periods of time and, and for the lifespan with their loved one with autism. Um, and in addition to all the day-to-day things, I, so many families have told me how much they appreciate knowing that there are people um, in universities, people who have access to all of this, this sort of cache of, of data that's being shared and appreciate the research that's being done because the implications, even though they know may not uh, have something um, that's going to impact them or their loved one right now, but but just for people in the future in general, it's really it's, that's the community aspect of this thing. And then the other thing I just want to share is that I think it, it's it's really important for people to recognize that there is a huge handholding between real people and real families and uh, research being done, you know, with mice or wherever in a in a lab in a in a in a university or or clinic setting. And the story of Jake. Um, meeting meeting one of the mice right meeting a my the mouse yeah didn't was, he name it he named it jake one or something <laughs> i think they were joking around i don't know if he settled on a name or not but i think that was one of the neatest things of this process was just a couple of months ago we finally got to meet 
Jake and his family yeah. and have them come into the lab and Jake got to meet his mouse. Um, a friend of ours had also made a, a, a neuron, human neuron stem cell lines out of Jake's skin cells and he got to meet his cells as well. But I mean, for us as researchers, we really love hearing from the families and having an opportunity to interact with you guys. And it really changes a lot of the way we think about the disorder and what we should be doing in the lab. And also it's just such a wonderful personal connection to you know, we'd heard about them on paper. We'd heard about them through our clinical colleague, but to actually see them in the lab and meet this wonderful young man with a great personality mm-hmm. um, and uh, joke around them and be able to show them what we had discovered. And um, it was, it was great for us. We really loved it. That's awesome. And it sounded from what I read, the article I read uh, sounded like for, for the family and for Jake himself. Um, it was also equally impactful um, for him to realize that something that he can offer really the world um, and certainly for now, the scientific community um, that was special to him, very specific to him mm-hmm. um, and only really something that he could offer was, uh, was very significant. So I, I love it when things like that come together in that beautiful way. And I uh, thank you again for your work. Thank you for coming on the show and, and explaining it to us and please keep us posted. If you, if you come you know, to new conclusions or additional uh, information, we'd love to have you back on. Absolutely. I had a wonderful time being here and thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope you guys stay engaged and keep encouraging the families to stay involved with research. Uh, It's really essential to to everyone that we all work together on. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, uh, Dr. Joe Doherty. And uh, this is one in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to one in 44, a weekly presentation of the Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at this time next weekend.